So I'm preaching this morning on something called the sufficiency of grace. Um, so we're going to cover a few things. Predominantly, we're going to go around grace. What is it? How does it work? What does it look like? Um, but also, it's sufficiency. And sufficient means enoughness, the enoughness of grace for us, for what we need for life, for this thing of serving and following Jesus. And, um, you know, we've covered some, some quite hectic topics in the last little while. We've looked at dating, we've looked at holiness, we've looked at conflict in the church, we've looked at this body, uh, many pieces fitting together and how like that thing is like it takes from us, man. It is like it's hard. Who finds church super easy all the time? Hey, not one hand. Amazing. It's hard, you know, but we're called to it. And this is Jesus's plan. This is the plan for this planet is the church. And how are we to do this thing? And often, you know, when we preach hard topics, you can sometimes leave with this sense of like, woe is me. I'm like, I'm such a wreck. I'm so messed up. I've gotten this so wrong. Like, what do I do now? And the reality is that man has been feeling that way since the Garden of Eden. And there's been a plan since before time to help us out of that place. And that thing is grace. That is our help. That is the remedy. Um, but it's, it's two things. Grace, you know, we're going to throw around some topics. So you'll often hear people talk about um, saving grace and enabling grace. I want to tell you something. Those are not two separate things. That is two sides of the same coin. They are inseparable from each other, these two concepts. And we're going to look at this and we're going to explain it. And we're going to talk about what it is. But the sufficiency of grace. It is the enoughness of grace both to cover us when we've gotten it wrong and when we've messed up. And it's the enoughness of that grace to help us to overcome and to do better and actually to at some point beat sin and shortcoming and falling short of God's standard. And so what is grace? Well, the very simple definition is it is unmerited favor. So what that means is goodness that we don't deserve a free gift that has not been earned. And to explain this properly, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to talk a little bit about sin again. Okay. So, oh man, come on. Can't we just get done with the sin thing? Uh, but that's kind of the, the plan. Um, and it's kind of like you can't talk about parachutes without talking about gravity. The reality of the one necessitates the other. Okay, but um, what is grace? It is, it's two things. It's both God's attitude towards us, how he thinks about us, how he feels about us. When he looks at us, what does he see? That is his grace. But it's also how he acts towards us. Because if I tell Ellie, Ellie, I love you. You're amazing. Such a good wife. Like, I love being married to you. And then I just don't ever do anything then that's a truth, right, that I'm saying. But does she treasure that? No. It's when I come home with flowers and I say, because I love you, I have bought you flowers. Because I love you, I get up before you in the morning and I make you coffee so that it's ready. Like, because I love you, you know, there's this outworking of my love towards her that turns the truth of my love into a treasure that she actually holds. And that's what we're after this morning. We want to take, I'm going to give you some truths. 
Oh, Holy Spirit, would you help us to make those things treasures that we hold on to, that we bury deep in our hearts, Lord. And know how to bring the truth part. Lord, the treasure part would you do. So, so we most often understand grace in the context of our sinfulness. So it's this idea that, hey man, we've fallen short, we've messed up, and Jesus has saved us, and because of what he's done and because of his grace, we no longer have to face the consequences justly deserved that our actions require. That's kind of how we usually think of grace, and it's true, it is an accurate description, but it's not the whole picture. So we're going to read a passage of Scripture. Now, this is quite long, but I want to read through it all. I'll read through it quickly, and then I'll take you where we're going to go, and you're going to hear some big words like righteousness and justification, and like there are going to be some concepts that we're going to break down for you, so don't get freaked out by the kind of big words, and Paul is a brilliant mind, and he kind of constructs these arguments that took me like, this was like three days for me just to understand 18 short verses, but anyway, um, we're going to go through that now. So Romans 6 verse 1 to 18, so Paul is, is in Romans 5, he's, he's kind of, he's talking about this grace, about the fact that Jesus has died for us, he's died for our sins, that there is grace and forgiveness for the fact of our shortcomings. And people being people, we love to do this. We love to find a sweet little shortcut and take something out of context and make it work for us. And this is exactly what's happening in this passage, is that people are basically saying, what then shall we say? Wait for our AV guys to catch up with us, yeah. Because they're doing good work. So proud of our little congregation, man. I was just looking around this morning. We've got like guys on AV and people in kids' church and guys on setup and Folks have done so well. It's so cool to just see this body growing up into maturity and health. Okay, so what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We have died to sin. How can we any longer live in it? Or don't you know that those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. If we've been united with him like this in death, then we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with and that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again, and death no longer has mastery over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. 
Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves of the one who you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Okay, big passage of scripture. Who can recite that back to me word for word? Go. Is there one more? Oh yeah, for you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Not a popular topic, slavery. But we preached on that a while ago. It's actually quite awesome. So what is this whole idea of being under law? I'm going to quickly go through that. So let's rewind. Genesis, right in the start. Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden. And there's one law. There's only one thing you've got to do. One rule. One thing to obey. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then Satan comes along and he says, hey... Like, don't worry if you do that. You're not going to die. You're actually going to be like God. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil. And what he's saying is that, man, if you eat of that thing, you will from now on be the one who decides on what is right and wrong. That is the knowledge of good and evil. It is that God will no longer be our moral compass. We will be our own moral compass. What feels right, what feels justifiable, that is what we'll do. How's that working out for you? Hey, not so well for me. And so the problem is that we are now our own moral compass, but we're these sinful, broken things. Our compass is skewed. It's no longer inclined towards the things of God. It's inclined towards our own sinful desires. And so we start to mess up and we get things wrong. And suddenly we don't know how to live. Like a few chapters later, there's a brother killing his brother. Like that's how quickly things just go pear-shaped. And so God has to step in again, and he's got to give us new laws. Like, you guys are trying to figure this out on your own, and your compass is messed up. So I'm going to give you some rules to live by. And that's in the Old Testament. There are a total of 613 Old Testament laws. Quite a lot. And guys, they cover everything. Like, literally, I mean, I'll show you from, like, it is like, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul, and, like, from up there. Right down to, and this is a law in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, you can go and find it, that says, if you are in your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat some of his grapes, as many as you want, but you may not put any in your bag to take home. Okay, like that's, that's the degree of like how we should live that God now has to give us, because we're just getting this thing so wrong. Another one, if you build a house, he's even got like occupational health and safety rules in there. Serious, is if you build a house, so back in the day, they had these flat-roofed houses. If you build a house, you have to build a parapet around the roof so that no one falls off your roof and you're not guilty of bloodshed. Literally, so God is now covering like architecture. Like that is how wide the breadth of stuff that he's now got to cover because we get this thing so wrong and the problem is that if we relate to law like why is it a bad thing to be under law because law has penalties for starters but also who's kept let's just talk south african law who's kept every single law carmel 
Have you crossed every road at a zebra crossing? You've broken the law. You're not allowed to just walk across the road. You're a criminal, <laughs> Carmel. But I'm serious. Like, none of us keeps the law perfectly. And that becomes a problem because if keeping the law perfectly, if I'm under law, the way I relate to the law means that the degree to which I keep it is the degree to which I am righteous. So righteousness, being in right standing, being morally okay. No one can hold an accusation against you, free from moral guilt or sin. Okay, that's righteousness. That's kind of the big word there. But if my law-keeping is to provide my righteousness, got some problems. I'm not going to get the 100% pass mark I need because God is absolutely pure, absolutely righteous, absolutely holy, and I'm now not. The other problem is that it doesn't matter if I fulfill the law by faith or by pure, pure force of will and grit. I'm like, I will never cross the road again if not at a zebra crossing. Like, we can kind of do that to a degree. But that's pure force of will. What are we saved by? Faith. That's the only way. So Ephesians 2 verse 8, you don't have to put this up, but it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. If you want to be saved by your own best efforts, even if you get that right, it means nothing. So being under the law sucks. The other problem is that I'm still a sinner bound in this little sack of meat and bones that wants to go its own way the whole time with flesh that is so loud and strong. And I don't keep God's moral law perfectly. I covet. Times I'm like, Yo, Aaron's got some nice tires on his 4x4. Or I get angry. I do. Like, I'm trying to kill that thing, but I do. Get impatient. And so my best efforts don't hold me blameless before God. And that's a scary place to be. And so what is our hope, if not under law, which we've established? Everyone in agreement that law, not a good place to be. We're not, we don't want to be there. Okay, we want to be under something else. And that something else is called grace. And that grace is wrapped up inescapably in this person called Jesus. So we're going to put up Galatians 4, verse 4 to 8. It says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. I want you to take note of that. To redeem those of us who are under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because if you are sons, or because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. For formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature were not gods. Get the law. Okay. So 
I love this story. Jesus was born under the law because we were stuck under the law. And this is the whole miracle of the gospel and of what Jesus did is he sent his son down to us because we couldn't break through this thing of the law that was crushing us. So God says, cool, I've seen you guys try this for like 4,000 years. You're not getting it right. We need to make a plan. So we're sending Jesus into the hole that you're in of the law. And Jesus comes in under this impossible weight that we are carrying that is crushing us. And he is the only one who can lift this thing. And so he does. So Jesus comes in and he keeps the law perfectly. God's moral law. Crossed the road at the zebra crossings. Didn't put grapes in his bag. He built a house. I'm sure there was a parapet. But he keeps the whole of God's law to perfection. He fulfills Every last command that is given does it perfectly. And so he's suddenly the only man on earth who can actually stand in front of God and say, God, under law, I'm righteous. I am justified. I did it perfectly. And then what he does is he takes that righteousness that he has, that he's earned, that's his alone, he says, Andre, I'm going to share this thing with you. I'm going to swap. I want your brokenness, your shortcomings, where you've fallen short. I'm going to take that. You are going to take this. You get to hold up a card that says, I'm righteous. But you haven't done a thing to deserve it. In fact, the opposite. And Jesus takes that penalty that Andre should serve. And he says, I, having done nothing wrong, being perfectly innocent, I will pay the price that you should because your sin demands a penalty. And Jesus takes it. And he takes it to the cross. And he is killed. He faces the death penalty for Andre's sin. And for Carmel's jaywalking. And what do we do? Seriously, by faith, we fall into the arms that are the only arms that are strong enough that could ever carry that burden, that could ever lift the weight of the law. We fall into it. And we say, Jesus, save us. That impossible burden is lifted in him. And we get to walk in it. For no other reason than that it's his good pleasure and he's just that kind. And suddenly, this righteousness, this right standing, this being free from moral sin, free from crimes, free from any kind of accusation, creates in us a platform to walk into this thing called sanctification which is the process of overcoming our sin. And it's this crazy thing where God has said, you are holy, so be holy. You have been justified. I've paid the price for your sin, so you are now free to walk into a life of overcoming sin. And that is his grace. 
So his grace has paid the penalty that we should pay. And that's the one beautiful side of the coin that we love. But it also does something else, which enables me by his spirit to actually overcome the sin that still wants to entrap me. It covers the sin that I have committed. It helps me to break free of the sin I'm currently in. And then it changes me because outside of his grace, I would not be able to walk in freedom from sin that otherwise would have gotten me down there. But who's walking in that total overcoming of sin? No hands again. Don't worry, me neither. I thought you were putting your hand up there, Ellie. I was going to be like, hey, if anyone could come close, it would probably be you. Um, but what is my relationship to sin now? Can we put up verse 13 and 14 of that Romans passage again? It says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. I'm going to quickly show you something there. That sin shall not be your master, that is not a command. It's like, Andre, sin shall not be your master, you shall sin no more. It's not that, it's a promise. It says, Andre, sin is not going to master you. It is not going to be what defines you. It's a promise. Because you are not under the law, but are under grace. So I don't yield to sin anymore. Simply because I don't have to. It is not the boss of me anymore. God is. He's on the throne. Because I'm no longer its slave, I don't have to obey it anymore. I can choose to, but I don't have to. It doesn't have ownership over me anymore. I'm actually his. I now belong to Jesus through the work of the cross. And because I belong to him, he is working in and through me the whole time by this incredible free gift of grace to help me to overcome my sin and my shortcomings. And when I talk about sin, like, I'm talking about the repeated, continual, willing, habitual sin. That's the stuff that I keep falling into. I keep, it says, don't go on practicing sin. It's like my addictions or my strongholds or my little pet attitudes or my patterns of thought. It's the stuff that I go to all the time because I'm familiar with it actually from an old life. That stuff is what we break. And we overcome by his grace. Doesn't mean we're ever going to get it perfect this side of eternity. Like there still might be the odd moment where I like stub my toe and in anger I'm just like. Rah! But that's, that's my old flesh still dying. We're talking about the habitual, the, like the going into the stuff that we know is wrong and shouldn't. The reason this is so important is the first kind of grace 
is a parachute. It's like, wow, gravity's real. I'm in a plane. Thank goodness I have a parachute. I have something that will cover gravity. The second kind is opening the parachute. Because that parachute means nothing to you if you're free-falling. You're like, thank you, Jesus, I'm under grace. Splat. No, you got to pull that cord. you got to open the parachute, which helps you to overcome your sin. Wearing it is not enough. Wearing it is truth. Yes, there is grace. Opening that thing, man, in that moment, you treasure the fact that you got a parachute. And so how does this grace work? What does it look like played out in our lives? So the first and probably most important for us is that the wrath of God is removed from us. God is holy. He is perfect. And because of that, our sin requires payment. We've sinned, all of us, against God. And because he's perfect, that sin has got to be satisfied somehow. And for those of us who know Jesus, that price was paid in his son, the perfect one who lived the law perfectly and then gave up that get-out-of-jail-free card so that we could. And suddenly when God looks at us, all of his infinite power and might and wisdom is not directed to us in wrath, but in kindness and in friendship and in love, and in mercy. Because he has no wrath to pour out on us anymore. He poured it all out on Jesus. What I love about this, you know, this is not my analogy, but that's Ryan Kingsley's. Um, but when I became a parent, it became very real to me. He, he used this picture. He said, imagine someone walks in, to this room and goes and fetches my son out of kids' church and brings him to the front and pulls out a gun and says, Adam, you get to make a choice. I can take Eli and everyone else here will leave free or you keep Eli and I will shoot every single person in this building. Can I tell you in my heart, I would give up my son I would. It would be so hard, but I would. Having done that, though, what that cost me, do you know how hard I'm going to fight for you? Do you know how much I'm going to pour my life into you so that that sacrifice becomes something? And there's a biblical precedent for that. In Romans 8 verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He will give us everything that it takes to get us across the line, fully sanctified into glory. Because it cost him his son. And so there's no wrath anymore. There's friendship, help. What does it take to get Anton from where he is to eternity? Okay, you need help. 
I'll help you. You need breakthrough, I'll bring you breakthrough. You need faith, I'll bring you faith. You need hope, I'll give you hope. You need discipline, I'll discipline you. But you cost me, and so I will get you all the way. So the wrath of God is removed. Secondly, the paralyzing guilt of our sin is removed. How many of you have just, like you just feel so sif when you mess up? I remember back in my younger years of indiscretion, like I often think about this when I shower, but I would, I would mess up. I'd cross lines with girlfriends. And I'd feel so dirty afterwards that I'd go and I'd shower. And I literally had this routine. I'd like, I'd wash my hair and then I'd wash my face and then I would shave and I would wash my whole body and I would cut my fingernails. And there was this like sense of wanting to cleanse myself from the outside because something in me knew that I was dirty by what I'd done. And that is why... Man, that's why I hate shame. Like, I love that song we sang. We're like, shame is undone. No, I hate shame so much. It makes a mockery of the gospel. Comes to and says, Anton, that price that Jesus paid for you? Not enough. No, 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 your sin trumps what Jesus did on the cross. Don't, don't come here. Don't come near me. Don't. It's a lie and a mockery. I hate shame. And when you're in this paralyzing guilt, like, you lose hope that the fight's even winnable. You lose hope that you can. You lose hope that Jesus even wants you to. But it says, he who has died with Christ has been justified from sin. So when you die with Christ, which means you've given your life to him and you've been baptized, you've, like that symbolic going under the water and coming up is the picture of us dying. You're now justified. You actually, I stand in front of God now as if I'd never slept with any of those women. He's removed that from me. I am justified from that sin. I stand in front of God with a clear conscience. I shouldn't. I mean, I did those things. But they're not held against me anymore. And the thing that I love is that that righteousness is not mine. It doesn't come from me. It comes from him. Undeserved unmerited gift of grace. So we're freed from his wrath. We're freed from the paralyzing guilt of our past sin. And then lastly, it is God at work in us. This is a beautiful thing about his grace is that it inclines us away from our own flesh towards him. Who have you found when you got saved? You started to like different things. Not all of it at once. Like the things I used to like, I started to like a little bit less. The things I started to like were the things of him. I laughed when I didn't know Jesus. There was nothing worse for me than knowing that like my next two weeks were booked up. I was like, if I had two things planned in a week, I was like freaking out with stress. Now in church, like I love it. My weeks are quite full and quite busy. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Like my inclinations have changed. Can we put up verse 17 of that Romans passage? Uh, Romans, not Galatians. Okay. 
So it says, but thanks. Okay, let's stop at thanks. Why do we say thanks? What do you think happened? Hey, someone did something. Cool. Who did something? Thanks be to God. Okay, awesome. So God did something. What is it that God did? It said, though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. My translation says, you from the heart obeyed. That tells me that God has changed something in us, that now from the heart, not from law, which is I will do this by pure force of will, by the, from our hearts we've changed, our inclinations are changed, our identities are changed. We've been set free from sin by God. We've been enslaved to righteousness by God. He has done this thing and he works it out in and through us. So the wrath is removed, the guilt is removed, and God is now working and changing us. So what is our responsibility in all of this? Covered three ways that grace works. There are three things that we need to do. I don't know why three, it just seems more biblical. But number one, don't let sin be your master. You were bought. You were taken from one evil, cruel monster. You were a slave. You were bought from one by another. A kind, loving, good father. One master was interested in your downfall and your destruction. The other one interested in your good and actually in your eternity. And so my new master is Jesus. He now sits on the throne. He informs my desires. He shapes the inclinations of my heart. He is now king. And my life as a Christian and a disciple and a follower of him is now devoted to making war on the illegitimate slave master who would have me back. The one who would come and would try and take me and re-enslave me. Dominate me. And I make war on him until he is defeated in my life. And that moment of defeat will happen either when Jesus comes or I go to him. I will win that battle in finality. But I'm going to spend my life fighting it. And the evidence of this new master, this new identity, this new king is the fact that I fight. Not that I always win. I try and I fight. And I throw myself into the battle. And if I lose a battle, I get up and I say, Jesus, thank you for your grace. Help me get back in. So I don't let sin be my master. Secondly, I understand that this grace is initiated by and it depends on God. And that gives me hope. Because I know what he's like. He is the overcomer. And so me, an old, hard-headed, stubborn sinner, actually has a shot at living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. 
He's sovereign. He has authority over everything. And he inclines that towards me and my goodness and my overcoming of sin. And thirdly, I live for his glory. And this one, I love because if we were just to do this in our own strength again, it would be going back to law. And then it would be about my glory. But Jesus, check out what I did. Crossed the road at every zebra crossing this week. I did good. About my glory all of a sudden and not his. But Philippians 2 verse 12 says, We continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It requires something of us. But we do it because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his will and his good pleasure. Now he gets the glory there. So it's a two-sided coin. His grace has covered us in, and that same grace enables and actually requires us to overcome it. So what I want to do in ending this off is we're going to break some bread together. And you'll probably find that you fall into one of two camps. Either you've got a little bit of the bend that I do, which is actually religion and law, which is wanting to do things right, chasing my own moral perfection, bit of an idea that actually, Jesus, I'm grateful for what you've done, but I'm also going to earn a little bit of my salvation back by doing all the right things. And you've lost sight of his kindness towards you. Or the second camp is, man, you're just so beaten. You're just so convinced that actually there's no hope anymore. Why even fight? Like, what is the point? And the point is this. You fight because you have a new master. And he is kind and he is good. 